Go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews. Thank you for the lovely piano music. The book of Hebrews, believe it or not, we are halfway. We're in chapter 6 of 13 chapters. At least by next week, we'll be, I think, officially halfway. And this morning, I'm going to read verses 6 to 3. The whole passage is chapter 11, I'm sorry, chapter 5, verses 11 to 6, 12. But I'm going to read chapter 6, 1 through 3. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on hands, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Let's pray. Father, now as we come to not just hear your word sung, but to listen to your word preach, may we have ears that hear. Give us minds to understand and hearts to submit to you. Give us discerning minds that we can understand what your text is saying, Lord. We thank you for your faithfulness and your love for Christ's sake. Amen. If you're 30 years old and you're scared of the dark, probably you should grow up. If you're 30 years old or 25 or 55 and somebody scolds you and says you're wrong and you wail, ah, you said I was wrong, probably you should grow up. That's probably being too immature. If you are 21 years old, or again, my age, 55, and you're so messy when you eat that all the time you have to wear a bib, probably you need to grow up. Now, living in that state of immaturity perhaps might be dangerous, But for a believer, if a believer doesn't grow up, but continues to behave in an immature way, that can be very dangerous. And that's what we're seeing in this passage in front of us. Last week we said this for this whole passage. Grow up in Christ, otherwise you're you're placing yourself in a very dangerous position. Grow up in Christ, otherwise you're going to put yourself in a dangerous position position. And Hebrews 11, sorry, keep saying that. Hebrews 5, verses 11 through 6, 12, we give us three directions on how we can grow up. Because if we're not growing up, then we could be drying up or or going down. The title of this sermon is, Grow Up or Go Down, Really Down. There are assurance that we have, not, not the security but the assurance that we have as believers is that we look at our lives and we see that we have progress, that we are growing in Christ. And if that's not there, if you don't see some kind of growth, then something is wrong. You can say it a different way. Either you're going forward or you're going backward. One of the two ways. And so as believers, we want to run the race. If we're not running, then something is wrong. At least we can say something is wrong. 
Now, for these believers in the book of Hebrews, and the writer says in chapter 6, verse 9, But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking this way. You see that in verse 9 of chapter 6. He believes there are believers, but there are some of them, or at least there's a temptation, a heavy temptation upon them to drift away from Christ. Another way of saying that is what he says in chapter 5, 11 through 12, is they are not growing up in Christ as they should. And if they're not growing up in Christ, in the providence of God, it's possible that somebody could apostatize or leave the faith, showing that they really weren't saved ever. And if you look at verses, chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, that's one of the most difficult passages in the whole Bible, especially in the book of Hebrews, is understanding who these people are, because it says in verse 6, and have fallen away, and it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Though in verse 4 they've been enlightened, they partook of the heavenly gift, and they were made partakers of the Holy Spirit. Exactly who are these people is hard to discern. But one thing to understand is Paul has been talking in first person or second person, either us or you. But when he talks about these that possibly could apostatize, he talks in a third person, which is more distant. And that's why in verse 9 of chapter 6, he says, but we're more convert, uh, the writer, we're more convinced that actually you are saved, that you know the Lord, that you're not going to drift away. But he is saying that theologically and according to, to Scripture, even looking at the nation of Israel, if you don't believe God and keep going forward, then you're placing yourself in a very dangerous position to where you could be like one of those seeds that were planted in the soil and you grow for a while and you have joy for a little while, but yet when the difficulties of the world arrive, you get choked out and leave the faith. So here in this passage, the Spirit of God is encouraging these believers and us to grow up so that, so we don't go down. And we saw already the first direction, and that was chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, and that was view lazy listening as infantile. And we get this because verse 11 says, you have become dull of hearing. And even in verse 12, so that you would not be sluggish. There is a type of listening which is not active, but merely we hear words that are being said from the sermon or words that we're reading in the Bible, and we don't really receive them into our heart. And so then the result is we, we don't grow as we should. And so then we're not trained, verse 14 of chapter 5, to discern good from evil. So the first direction is that we understand that when I'm reading the word or I'm hearing any sermon, that I need to have active, engaged listening. Whatever that takes, taking notes, standing up, whatever it, it might be, listening to the sermon again. That was last week. This week, then the second direction is this. Resolve to grow up. In order to grow up in Christ, you have to make a resolution. I resolve to actually grow up. I'm, I want to 
carry on in Christ's likeness. In fact, this word, if you look at chapter 6, verse 1, where it says, let us press, the word press in Greek is Pharaoh, like the king of Egypt. The way that I would remember this word many years ago, when I was in class learning New Testament Greek, we had to learn sometimes 80 vocabulary words a night. I will never forget this word because it was, we used to say Pharaoh, 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 that the Greek words pronounced Pharaoh. When it says, let us press on, the Greek words pronounced Pharaoh. And how I would remember it is that Pharaoh made the Jews carry loads on their heads. So it says, let us press on. You could also translate it as, let us carry. It's possible you could even translate it, and we'll talk about this in a moment, let us be carried. But there is a resolution here of carrying on in the Lord. Maybe you've seen T-shirts that say, carry on and drink a coffee, or carry on and something. Do you know where that comes from? When London was being bombed in World War II, there was a saying, carry on. We're going to keep going. Even though things are difficult and we're being bombed, we're being attacked, we could be overrun, we're going to carry on. We're going to move forward. That's the idea in chapter 6, verses really 1 through 8, is to carry on, keep moving, or keep growing. Take this, this and these steps to see you grow. Now, this morning, we're going to look at the resolution itself. This resolution, again, chapter 6, verse 1 says, let us That's a resolution. Together, let us do this. We see the resolution in verses 1 through 3, and the reason is verses 4 through 8. That's where the text talks about apostasy. We'll look at that next week. That's the reason. Uh, Let us carry on. Let us grow up in Christ. Let us carry on in Christ so that we don't apostatize. The, The divine means of not drifting away from Jesus is you go forward. You direct yourself by the grace of God to go toward Christ. So today we're going to look at the resolution only. And first, what does this mean? What does this mean? And I think we can break it down into three different parts. This resolution to carry on or resolve to grow up. First, this is a persistent commitment to be like Jesus Christ. It's a persistent commitment to be like Jesus Christ. This is the main verb here, and really the only imperative in verses 1 through 8 is right here, where it says, let us press on to maturity. That is the command, and it's the only command, the central command. Let us grow on to completeness. Let us grow on to perfection. When the Bible talks about maturity, like in the book of Ephesians or 1 Corinthians, maturity or perfection or completeness, it's the idea of Christ-likeness. Christ was the perfect man. An attitude, and action, and word. We want to be like him by the grace of God as far as we can. That is spiritual maturity, that we respond to life like Christ responds to life, like Christ responded to life. And so here, the Holy Spirit is saying, Leave certain things aside so that you can press on into Christ-likeness. Now, this is a type of verb which means 
have it as your habitual commitment to always seek and to grow in it and being like Christ. It is this persistent commitment to growth. I'm committed through thick and thin, up and down, whatever happens in life, I'm committed to grow in Christ's likeness, to know him and to become more and more like him. We talked about this this morning, that my destination is being like Jesus. That's what this verse here is saying, that I'm going to keep seeking to grow because there's never a place in my life spiritually where I can say I've arrived. I'm at my final destination. That won't happen. Remember 1 John 3, 3? That won't happen until I see him. Until then, I purify myself. I seek to be godly. I repent of sin. I press on in him. So it is this persistent commitment that I, I never give up. You can even look at how this verse is stated. Let us press on into maturity. There is this, this drive. There is this drive that is here in this verse. And I say drive because this word is used in many different ways. As I said, it can be used for carry on. It can be used for endurance. It can be used to press forward. Different versions translate it different ways. But this word is even used in the book of Acts, chapter 27, verse 15. And when the ship was caught in it, this wind, and could not face the wind, we gave away to it and let ourselves be driven along. Here the word is translated driven. The boat is driven. It's propelled forward. Verse 17 also says at the end of verse 17, in this way, let themselves be driven along. What are you driven by? What are you driven for? Here in the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, verse 1, be driven to spiritual maturity. There, there's whole books and seminars on being a driven person, a, a, a purpose-oriented life, a, a driven-oriented life. That person, that woman, they're really driven. Most of all, we should be driven to press on toward Christ-likeness. Where are you directing your life to? The priority is to know Christ and to be like Christ. And that's what the Spirit of God is saying to these believers in the book of Hebrews. Second, in terms of what this is, it's a persistent commitment to be Christ-driven, that is, driven to be like Jesus. But it's also a dependent commitment. It's also a dependent commitment. Now here when it says, look at verse 1 of chapter 6, let us press on to maturity. You could translate that, let us be carried along. Let us be pressed into maturity. As it's used in Acts 27, verses 15 and 17, let us be driven into maturity. The verb here, the voice of it is passive. And that can be kind of hard to translate it in English, so perhaps that's why they didn't translate it. But it is passive here. Let us press on to maturity is the idea of being pressed by God into maturity. But it's a command that we do. Uh, For example, you have Ephesians 5.18 says, but be filled with the Spirit of God. That's passive. 
I allow God's spirit to fill me. It's something that I'm involved with, but I do it in such a way of dependence upon God and his spirit. Here, too, it's passive. It's not simply that this is I I grit my teeth. I'm going to I'm a self-driven person to be like Jesus. I'm going to really press forward. I'm going to grow. Everybody commit to grow one inch this week. Everybody right now. Grow. Kids, I want to see you grow. Thomas, Elliot, grow right now. Can you do that? No. Even spiritually, also, it's not this self-determined, I resolve, I'm going to spiritually grow. That's a good desire, but as soon as you do that, what's going to happen? All kinds of temptations are going to come your way to inhibit you from growing or to help you to grow. This here is passive, meaning that the way to approach this is not, I'm going to rely upon myself and my own spiritual muscles or my own discipline, but rather I'm going to depend upon God to help me to grow in him. It's Philippians 2.13, right? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because he is working in you both to will and to work. Or 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul said, I labored more than all the apostles. But yet not I, it was the grace of God in me. And so there is this resolve that we have. I resolve before God by his grace to grow tomorrow, today, and this year more than I did last year. Are we every year growing even a little bit in Jesus? Are we going down a little bit in Jesus? If every year we're not growing even a little bit in Christ, then something's wrong. Are we growing? Are we closer to Jesus and behaving more like Jesus now than we were when we were new believers or last year? If not, then there's things I need to repent of and get right with God. Why? Because I don't want to end up drifting away, and I don't want you to drift away from the Lord. So there is this, I'm determined, I will grow in Christ. That means I will become more mature. I'll be more like Jesus, but it is a dependent, driven desire upon God. And this dependence is not, I should clarify, it's not 50% me and 50% God. It's 100% me. I'm 100% in to press on in Christ's likeness. And it's 100% God. He has to do all of it, and I'm going to totally go for it. And it's this dependent, driven desire to be like Jesus. Let us press on into this. But third, talking about the what, it's also a corporate commitment. That means it's body life. It's, it's community. And this book does this often. You'll note chapter 6, verse 1. Look at verse 1. It says, let us press in to maturity. Chapter 4. Verse 14, let us hold fast. Chapter 4, verse 11, let us be diligent to enter that rest. Sometimes and often in the New Testament, you will have you, you all. You all do this. You all do this. You all do this. You all do this. This is let all of us, the writer is including himself. All of us need to do this. Together we do this. It's talking about how we are interdependent. We're not independent from one another. We are interdependent upon one another. This is pointing an arrow towards fellowship and 
true Christian community that we should have with one another. I do it individually, but there is this together we do this, arm in arm, hand in hand. We've talked about in the book of Ephesians throughout old, older literature and even new media. You have many different sayings which highlight being united as one team. Right? So you have one for all and all for one. It's talking about community and unity. I'm for you, you're for me, and together we will accomplish this. You also have die alone, live together. And you've heard so many illustrations. If you take an ember from a fire and it's burning and place it by itself, eventually what's going to happen to it? It goes out. But if you have it together, then you're going to have a blazing fire. It's going to burn. And so here, too, it's the idea that it's not simply that I, by myself, am determined without anybody else, because the church is corrupt, the church is hypocritical, so without anybody else, I'm going to grow in Jesus. I don't need the church. I just need God. I heard that today, not today, yesterday, from a a person. That's all I need. I'm a Christian. I just need Jesus, and I just need God. I don't need the church or any fellowship, any Christianity. The church is corrupt. They're hypocrites. Well, the divine means for you to grow in Christ is by having fellowship and community with believers, having the one another with with other believers and being part of a local church. That is the ordained means of, one of the ordained means of growing in Christ. And that in part is what it means when it says, let us, we do this together. We're all in this together. We all want to know Christ. We all want to be like Christ. And so together we strive for this. And for these believers, many of them had relatives, friends, loved ones, even some from the church. You can read Hebrews 10 on your own. They were being placed into jail. And to even go and visit your loved ones in jail, it could place you in jail. And they were having their property seized and and taken from them. And so here, the Spirit of God is encouraging them. It's not you by yourself alone can make it. Yes, if that's what happens in a providence of God, if you're all alone, you, with the grace of God and the Spirit of God, yes, you can grow in Christ. But you and I should seek every opportunity to have fellowship and community together. That's why we have prayer meetings. That's why we have men's and women's studies. That's why we have fellowship after church. There is this corporate commitment to grow. And so we do it together. That's the what. This what of, I resolve to grow up. I want to grow up in Christ because if I don't, there is this warning that the Spirit of God gives that if you're not growing up in Christ, it could reveal that you were never saved. Not that you lose your salvation, but if you are saved, you're going to grow so you can go. You're you're going to go forward by growing up in Christ. And so first we see the the what. It's persistent, it's dependent, and we do it together, not alone. But now the how. The how. How do we do this? And this is, realize, specifically for their situation. Uh, Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, many, of course, all the letters of the New Testament, the whole Bible is, 
It's written to different believers that were in different situations. So this passage is not going to tell us every single way of how to grow. It's going to give us some ways that were specific to these believers and will overlap our situation to a degree. But there are other ways to grow in Christ. But these are some ways that these individuals needed to understand and to deal with. Now, I want you to notice what it, what it doesn't say. That is chapter 6, 1 through 4. It doesn't say, okay, since you're basically almost infants, right? For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant, verse 13. Verse 12 says, you ought to be teachers, but you need somebody to teach you the ABCs of the elements of God's word, of his revelation. Therefore, I'm going to give you milk. Like in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 4, Paul does say in 1 Corinthians, I'm, I'm going to give you milk. But if you look at this passage, he doesn't say, okay, now here's the things of milk. In fact, he says, leave these milky things behind. Right? He says, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ. He says, basically, you're, you're basically in danger of being infants. And you can only take basically milk. But he doesn't say, therefore, let me give you a bottle. Here's your little bottle of baby. You can use the baby. Sometimes we can treat baby Christians as babies. And that, in some situations, that's not the best. Because it's not that they are young Christians in terms of their chronology. They're young Christians because of how they've been behaving. And even Paul in 1 Corinthians does he baby them in terms of rebukes? If you read First Corinthians, he doesn't say you're babies. So I just, you know, I just, just trust God. In First Corinthians, he rebukes them over and over and over and over again for being babies. And, and here, the writer, writing the inspired word of God, he doesn't simply say, because you're basically acting like babies, stay as babies. He goes, take the milk. You've already drunk it. Leave those things behind. Now grow up, baby. So if you are a Christian and you've been a Christian for, you know, years and years and you're, you're immature in Christ, the Spirit of God says grow up. Remaining a baby is wrong. If you are a Christian for many years, then remaining a Christian baby is wrong. Now, Exactly how is this done? Then verses 1 through 3 are going to teach us how this is done. So first, by advancing beyond the very basics of Christ. By advancing beyond the very basics of Christ. You can look at verse 1, leaving the elementary teaching, the ABCs, about the Christ. Now, this is a participle, an adverbial participle. And it's coming before the verb. After the verb, he does the same thing. He has all of these participles that are telling us, modifying the verb, instructing us how to press on to maturity. But he puts one of these adverbial participles first. And then that's significant. It's a way in Greek they would frame a verb, something that we had to do. For example, uh, Matthew twenty-eight eighteen says, 
the, the core verb is make disciples of all nations. And then it talks about teaching and baptizing. But before those, you have what? Going into all the nations. And going comes in front of the verb, saying that before you can disciple people, you have to do what? You have to be going. You have to be out and about. If, you're, if you become a Christian and you just stay at home, the world is a scary place. And they're out to get me. And I'm just going to stay home. Then you're never going to be able to make disciples. And so when it says going, therefore, and making disciples, it's saying to be a disciple, that is framed by, to make disciples, that's framed by assuming that you should be going out in the world. Here it's similar. It's saying if you want to press on into maturity, you have to leave the the ABCs of Christ. Well, what, what does that mean? What are the ABCs of Christ? Well, in context, these were Hebrew believers. So I would say that probably then it meant the Old Testament data about the Messiah. For them, maybe their understanding of Christ was Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Genesis 3.15. Is it Micah 5.2? Uh, born in Bethlehem, maybe the Old Testament, Levitical sacrifices. All, all these are good things, but that's what they were really pressed into, what they were really thinking about all their time that was on their mind. In other words, they were going to the prophecies about Christ, but not living in the prophecies fulfilled about Christ. So they were all cut up and all concerned, maybe simply, not simply, but mainly about the Old Testament prophecies and data, like the Levitical priesthood, about who the Christ would be. But they they were not fully embracing and and reading and hearing and studying and, and, and talking about and thinking about that all those promises have been fulfilled except for the return of Christ. So he's saying, leave some of those things behind, not in the sense of forgetting about them, but pressing forward on them. These things are true. They're right. But these have been fulfilled. So you need to go forward in Christ and realize Hebrews chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 2. He is God. He is man. He is your propitiation. He is your great high priest. He lives to intercede for you. Now press on. That is, I think the idea here is that Jesus is supreme and he is sufficient. He is your all in all. Don't simply have Christ and this kind of shadow of him that was in the Old Testament, right? Colossians chapter 2.16, the Sabbath was a shadow. The reality is in Christ. Have a New Testament view of Christ. That he is king and he is Lord. That he's not just the Lamb of God, he's also the what? The Lion of God. Further, I think also in here, you also have this advance beyond conversion. Advance beyond conversion. Keep, leading, keep looking at chapter 6, verse 1. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, and a faith toward God. Now, he says a faith toward God, 
rather than faith toward Christ, because first, he's already been talking about Christ for several chapters, and then second, Jesus is God, and then he just talked about Christ and verse 1, and Christ brings us to God. I think that's why he says, don't lay, again, a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. But this is basically conversion. When he says repentance from dead works, the wages of sin is what? Death. So you can, without Christ, if you don't know Jesus, you can be a very good person, horizontally speaking, right? Compared to other people, you can be a good person. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 12 says, No, no one is good. No one is righteous. That is before God. Horizontally, you could be a pretty good person. But because you're a sinner, all the works that you have done, it leads to what? Death. And so when we repent, we're repenting of that orientation, of that lifestyle, of of that perspective, of this commitment. If I'm really a good person... As a friend told me two weeks ago, or three weeks ago, if I can just balance out my bad deeds with my good deeds, and then if I can just get a little bit more good, then I'll go to heaven. No, you have to, even that is a work of death. You have to repent of your dead, sinful deeds. And this repenting is you turn your back on sin, on sin, and you head straight toward Christ, and you trust him. It's not talking about salvation of works, but Jesus himself said, repent and believe in the gospel. So then why would you lay this aside? (laughs) Because here the Holy Spirit says, lay this aside. Well, what's going on? I think it can happen to all of us. How many times were you saved? I was saved about 13 times. And what I mean is, at least 13 times I said the sinner's prayer, right? Has that ever happened to you? I was so convicted so many times in my early Christian life where if I heard a sermon, maybe I'm not saved. I had better repent again, and to be doubly sure, I'm going to get saved again. And there can be this, if we're not careful, and I think what's happening to these believers is that there can be this process of maybe I'm not saved, I'm going to reconvert and then be, be saved again. And then maybe you, you know, you have a bad year, you have some bad months. You know what? I'm going to repent of my sin and become a Christian. I don't think I was really saved. And then after three or four years, you come back to the same position. Well, maybe I, I, I'm not really saved, so I repent. And wow, what's going on? And apparently some of these believers and this church were in this state where they always felt like they had to be resaved, resaved. But if you always have to be resaved, then what kind of salvation did you have in the first place? And what kind of savior is that? And again, it goes back to, is Jesus Christ your great high priest? And is he the best there is? And is he sufficient and supreme over all? And did he really die on the cross once for all so that all your sins are paid for? And that once you trust him, even if you have a bad year, a month, or a bad 10 years, if your faith and trust are in him, then you're saved. Apparently, again, these believers kept recycling into their beginning of their salvation. If you are, are in a race, 
let's say you're running the mile race on a track four times around. And so you get started. You're doing so well. And when I was young, every race, I ran as fast as I could the whole time. And then about after a lap and a half, I was completely exhausted. Let's say you go as hard as you can. Mile race, four times around. And you go fast. And so you're one time around. And you're out in the lead. But but you get tired. And so then slowly, you know, you, you begin to just tweet her out. Oh, I'm so tired. Everybody passes you. What should you do? Do you go all the way back to, to the beginning and say, okay, wait a minute. I'm, I'm going to start again. And then you start again. Well, for sure you're going to lose. And in a sense, I think this is what the Holy Spirit is saying to these believers. We all have sin in our life that we all have to deal with. More sin that we want people to think. Deal with that sin. Go to God. Confess your sin. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's First John 1 John 1.9. Confess that sin to God. But it's not an issue of you having to get resaved. If you keep doing that, then it's going to be hard to press forward. Be sure you're saved. Second Corinthians 13.5 says, examine to be sure you're in the faith. Certainly do that. First John, read the whole book. It talks about assurance. It was written First uh, John 5, 12 and 13 talks about these things have been written in order that you might know that you have eternal life. So read First John, study First John, but you don't have to keep being saved. The, the atonement of Christ, Christ dying as a substitute sacrifice for all who trust him is so sufficient. You don't have to get resaved. It is finished. Third, so you said advance. Beyond the Old Testament Christ, advanced beyond having to get saved over and over and over and over again. Remember, there was this temptation that they were having to keep offering sacrifices. So the Spirit of God is saying, no, there was one sacrifice once for all. Trust him and move on. Number three, advance beyond cleansing shadows. Or you can even say advance beyond religion. Look at verse 2, and it says, laying aside, put, a, put aside that you think you have to keep getting saved over and over again, but also put aside this instruction, and it's the word um, that we, uh, baptisma, baptismas, it's the plural hill, plural hill. It's the same word for baptism of instructions about washings and laying on of hands. Put these aside. Well, what is this talking about? Well, there's two main ideas. One idea, of, of course, is that in Jewish Old Testament religious second temple thought, and even in the Old Testament, there were various baptisms, especially if you converted from a pagan to a Jew, and then there were different Levitical washings that you had to do, right, to be purified. And then laying on hands, if you brought a sacrifice that people were instructed at times to lay their hands on the sacrifice, that they identify, my sins are placed upon this animal. And it could be very well that that's what the Spirit of God is talking about in these passage, and this right in, in this passage here, that these individuals still thought they had to have all the Old Testament washings. 
Haven't you ever thought and your life maybe maybe a legalistic tradition type of taboo thing that you had in the past that at times you you still think that you need to do that? That's what these believers apparently were going through. And even as I mentioned earlier, laying on hands, it could be there was pressure from their family. Have you been to the sacrificial atonement? You know, we had the day of atonement and you weren't there. Do you want to bring a curse upon yourself and your family? You didn't go to the day of atonement. They could have gone through that type of persecution. But they were tempted, that they were pressured in. If you really believe in God, and if you really believe he's going to provide a Messiah, then wouldn't you go to the Jewish temple, the sacrificial system, and place your hands on that lamb and offer that lamb to God? Wouldn't you do that? Are you a Jew? Are you an Israeli? Wouldn't you go to Mass? I had a relative of mine say, would you like to come to Mass? Would you please come to Mass with me? I said, no. Christ has already been sacrificed once for all. And he knew exactly what I meant. (laughs) Had an opportunity to share the gospel with him for many months. And then he died of a brain aneurysm. Cousin Paul. I love Cousin Paul. I think this, though, the the type of pressure these believers were undergoing to really get right with God. Don't you have to keep doing these these rituals and this religion? Or I think that's probably it. Some would believe that when it talks about washing, it's the word baptisms, that it's the idea that these believers were getting baptized how many times? One time? No. To be really spiritual, you've got to be baptized seven times. Or some baptized three times. That they would keep being baptized over and over and over again. And laying on hands was the idea in the book of Acts that you've received the Holy Spirit. And so it could have been that these individuals kept wanting to have these spiritual, even Christian, religious traditions and experiences happening to them over and over and over and over again. Both are wrong. And they explicitly and implicitly reveal that that person or persons are not trusting in the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ as Redeemer, as intercessor. And so the Spirit of God is saying that you don't keep going back and being reconverted, and you don't have to have this religious reoccurring sacrificial system, which is probably what I think what they were dealing with. They're probably really pressured into offering all these Old Testament sacrifices. No, Christ died once and for all. The blood of bulls and goats, they don't cleanse you from anything. Trust Jesus. Further, then number four, by advancing beyond personal eschatology, Advancing beyond personal eschatology. You can see it here plainly in verse 2. Lay aside, see that in verse 1, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. What? Why should I lay aside the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment? 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Hebrews 9, 27 talks about judgment. So what does this mean? Laying aside... 
the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Well, the Old Testament talked about the resurrection of the dead in Daniel 12. Psalm 16, your Holy One will not undergo decay. Even Job talks about, and even Second Samuel talks about the resurrection of the dead in, in some senses. So it could be that he's saying, lay aside all these Old Testament shadows or pointers to the resurrection of the dead. But I think more than that, that these believers were having a hard time really with their own personalized eschatology in the sense of what's going to happen to them and what's going to happen to the evil people that are doing these wicked things. And I bring that up because chapter 10, verse 32, says, But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sheriffs of those who were so treated. Verse 34, chapter 10. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you yourselves have a better possession, a lasting one. They were dealing with true persecution. And there were many of them that were doing the, the right thing and the, and the proper thing and the godly thing, the Christ-like thing. But apparently there were some that were having a hard time. And, and it could be, and I think probable, that they were concerned about what's going to happen with my beloved ones that are in prison. And they die. What's going to happen to them? What's going to happen to me if I try to help them and then I myself lose everything and I'm placed in prison? And these evil people that are inflicting upon us all this suffering unjustly, are they going to get away with it? I think it perhaps it, perhaps it is both that they were understanding what the Old Testament said but didn't have the fuller New Testament revelation or were not receiving and understanding and trusting all that the revelation that they had said about the future resurrection and eternal judgment. So I think in context, what the Spirit of God is saying is, understand that there is going to be a resurrection. You know, First Thessalonians chapter 4 and, and elsewhere in the Bible and those who trust Jesus are going to be with him forever and forever and forever. So you and your loved ones that trust Jesus, you'll all be resurrected together with him. And Hebrews 9, verse 27, And as much as has it appointed for men to die once, and after this comes, comes judgment. And any evil that's been done to you, if those people aren't saved, they will be judged perfectly forever. So what do you have really to worry about? There's pain and there's suffering and there's hard time and there's anguish, but ultimately Jesus wins and you win forever and forever and forever. So he's saying, in a sense, grow up. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. Take what you know about eschatology and apply the main things of it to your life. There's going to be a future resurrection where you will be you and you'll have a glorified, perfect body and all those that committed evil, they will be held accountable. So grow up and press on. I mentioned this morning during Sunday school that when I was young, I would question myself, did I miss the rapture? Will I miss the rapture? Will you be godly enough 
that you can be raptured up to the Lord? There is a teaching where only those that are godly will be raptured. I also deal with a lot of my body is falling apart. And I, I think for you, young guys, you, you, you won't feel that way till you're about 40. You, you hit 4-0. I'm sorry, young men and women. You hit 4-0. Then it's like, whoa, what happened? And then you hit 5-0. And then you know you're going down the hill. And it's just, it's fast. It's just, <laughs> you're just sliding down the hill. And you can have all kinds of bodily pains and body things that happen to you when you're 55. And so there are times, even with, even with my wrinkles, I'm like, oh, my hand's starting to look like my dad's hands. Oh, no, Lord, help me. <laughs> I'm going to die. It's true. You're going to die, I'm going to die, unless Jesus comes back. And I think this passage is telling them those kind of things, you're going to have to leave those behind because there is a resurrection of the dead and there is judgment for all evil that's been done. Yes, trust those things. Don't be encumbered by them. Trust those things. Believe those things. Okay. Do you understand that there's a resurrection and a judgment? Yes. Okay. Got it. Now go. Get it down and go and press forward. Now we looked at the what and we looked at the how and we'll finish in just a moment. There's a second how. There's a second how. The first how was basically you lay aside these things. The second how, look at verse 3. And this we will do if God permits. And this we will do permits. That's what the Greek says. This we would do. If permits God, it's highlighting permits. This we would do if God permits. It's really saying, how, how do we do this? We make a declaration. I love the declaration of independence. I'm all for it in terms of our country and politics. But in terms of the whole universe and in terms of God, we don't raise our own flag and say, I declare my independence. That's what Satan did. Okay, We don't do that. Before God, we raise our flag of what? Dependence. And say, God, 24-7, 365 days for the rest of my year, I'm 100 totally dependent upon you. So if I do make this decision, I resolve this year to grow in this one area of my life. I know I can do that only by your grace, Lord. If you will, Lord. it's your will that that I grow, yes, but I need your grace. I need your power. I need your presence, Lord. Lord, please help me. And really, it's the Spirit of God that's being such a terrific shepherd because the voice of the verb, let us press on, is let us be pressed and and driven by God into maturity to where I'm saying, yes, God, I want to grow. God causes the growth, right? First Corinthians, God causes the growth. 1 Corinthians 3, Lord, you caused me to grow. I'm going to really try hard. And then at the end of this little section, God does it. God permits it. God makes it happen. So then, are you growing in Jesus Christ? That means, are there areas in your life where you are becoming 
more like Jesus. Growing in Christ does not necessarily mean, well, this year I read five books of the Bible. That's good. But that doesn't necessarily mean you're growing in Christ. Growing in Christ means that you are responding to life the way that Jesus did. So there's more compassion, mercy, tenderness, humility, evangelizing the lost, more intercessory prayer, more forgiveness, more purity, less anger in your life. That's what it means to grow in Jesus. It may involve reading your, it does involve reading your Bible, but the display of that is a changed, godly, Christ-like life. If you're not growing in Jesus, then you're placing yourself in a dangerous position. If you're not growing, you're then are drying up or going down, and that's not in a good place to be. There, there's no in-between. You either are growing in Christ or you're not. Now, that, that growth may be small. And I think for most of us, our growth is small at this stage in our Christianity. At first, our growth when we become Christians can be large because there's a stark contrast between being dead and being alive. But after you've been alive for in Christ for decades, that growth sometimes can, though not stalled, can be small. This is my challenge to you and to all of us. This year, I challenge you right now, resolve this morning, right now, Resolve, and then talk about it later with your spouse or a good friend to grow in one area of your life. Maybe it's your temper. Maybe it's forgiveness. Maybe it's in evangelizing. Maybe it's in being humble. Maybe it's in being tender. Maybe it's in what you watch or don't watch or what you listen to or don't listen to. Maybe it's in a hobby that you are spending too much time in. What's one area in your life that you can grow in? And this year, grow in that area. Would you do that? And maybe I would challenge you, ask your spouse or ask a good friend or a good relative, what is one area do you think I could grow in? Now, spouse or good friend, when they ask you that, when they say, what's what's one area that I can grow in? When they ask you that question, don't give them three areas. So if your spouse or a friend says, hey, honey, hey, friend, what area in my life do you think I can grow in? Well, let me give you the top ten. Don't do that. Give one. Just give one. And each of us take one area in your life and grow in that one area. Don't remain a spiritual infant. Grow up. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how clear that your word is here. It's not really that obscure here, Lord. May we grow up and not drift away from Christ. May you receive all the glory. Amen.